So back in the uh, early, can't believe I'm saying this, it makes me feel old, back in like the early 2000s, mid-2000s, there was this sitcom on for a few seasons called My Name is Earl, and the premise of the show was Earl, who is the main character, just had a lot of bad stuff happen to him, and he learned about karma, and he thought, well, maybe my life will turn around and get better if I, like, obey the rules of karma. So he made a list on some yellow notebook paper of every person and every bad thing he had ever done and thought, I'm just going to go through the list and try to make this up to everybody. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to make it up to everybody I've hurt. I'm going to return anything I've stolen or anything bad I've done. And so, of course, every episode is kind of this hilarious, comical attempt at Earl to make up some past misdeed that he's done. And he tries to, you know, fix it. And then typically at the end of the episode, you know, he's, He's done whatever, meets the, the satisfaction of that person, and he gets to cross it off his list. And he's trying to hope that his life will turn around and things will slowly get, get better. You know, and many of us, we kind of, we kind of wonder if that's, if that's really how the world works. Now, maybe we don't always call it karma as Christians, but we just kind of think, well, maybe if I do some good things, good things will happen. And if I do bad things, bad things will happen. And so we just kind of wonder about that. And even Job and his friends, that's kind of the, the main understanding that they have of the world, and that's one of their big questions. Does God make good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? So as we're continuing our series in the book of Job called The Chorus in the Chaos, we're at this point in their conversation where this issue of good things happening and bad things happening really comes to a head, and they begin to really kind of argue over it. So I just want to read you a few snippets from this, this part of the conversation goes from chapters 15 to 21. I'm just going to read you some little, some little highlights so you get kind of how, how the conversation's going. So uh, Job's friend Eliphaz starts off, and he says, Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wis- wisdom? What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have? that we do not have. In other words, Job, you're not smarter than us. You don't know anything that we don't know. Come on, man. Come clean. You don't understand how the world works any better than we do. And then he goes on, all his days the wicked man suffers torment. The ruthless man through all the years stored up for him. So Eliphaz is already, that's him saying, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. That's just how the world works, Job. You don't know any better. Then Job responds to his, his friends, and he says this, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Yeah, you never want that to be what people say about you. You're just so bad at comforting people. He says, will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I can make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but... In my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. His friend Zophar then comes in. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. A fire unfanned will consume him and devour what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. A flood will carry off his house, rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. So you can hear both of his friends 
think, obviously the way the world works is bad things happen to bad people. And Job, you must have done something really bad for God to allow these horrible things to happen to you. That is their logic. And Job does not understand that because he knows he hasn't done anything bad. So what's going on? And he is confused. And at this point in the book, their conversation, they start to get more frustrated with each other. They start to get a little more snippy with each other. Job is losing his patience for his friends, and his friends are losing their patience for Job. And they just continue to fight and fight and fight about how the world really does work and what's really going on. And so after his friends sit in silence with him for seven days, and then they give him some platitudes, now they're beginning to sort of accuse Job. Because in their mind, clearly Job has done something terrible, and he just needs to fess up. And then God will fix all this. But Job continues to not confess, because he he has nothing to confess to. He doesn't know what to confess about. And so the frustration only builds and builds and builds. And along the way, Job gets, starts to feel pretty angry at God. He thinks he's being mistreated. He thinks God is being very unfair to him, that if this is the way the world's supposed to work, then why on earth, God, are you treating me this way? Like, don't I deserve better? And so he continues to get upset and frustrated, and his friends aren't doing any help. And we, you know, sort of, we can end up in the same place that him and his friends are in. When bad things happen, it's very natural to begin to question, well, why did this happen? And God, haven't I done enough? Haven't I served you faithfully? Why would this bad thing happen to this person? This just doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. And we begin to ask a lot of questions and wonder. And, you know, again, maybe we, maybe we kind of think maybe, maybe there is something to this whole karma thing. Maybe there's something to that. Or, you know, some people talk about like what the universe wants, as if there's just this kind of this this mystic power out there that makes everything happen, and we just call it the universe. Or maybe you've even used the phrase or heard the phrase, what goes around comes around. So we sort of just kind of in the back of our minds think to some level, this is how the world works. It's you do good things, good things happen. You do bad things, bad things happen. But Job really wonders if that's even true and if that's how the world actually works. Now, if all you had was the book of Deuteronomy and Proverbs in the Bible, you would think, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Because Deuteronomy and Proverbs both talk very black and white. I mean, Deuteronomy goes on and on about if you do what God says, he's going to bless you. And if you don't do what he says, he's going to curse you. And so if you have Deuteronomy, you think, well, yeah, that's how God works. And you read Proverbs, and Proverbs gives these principles, and it just sounds like, well, if, you are, are, if you're wise your life's going to be really great, and if you're a fool, you're going to ruin your life. That's just kind of what we would think. However, there are these two extremes we can fall into if we have a bad theology of suffering. There's two extremes. Uh, Sam was a Christian, and a co-worker one day came into Sam's office, and she was visibly upset, and, you know, kind of the office chatter got around, and everyone began to learn that this poor woman in their office had had a, uh, a miscarriage, and she was incredibly upset. So Sam, you know, did the Christian thing. He went up to her, gave her a hug. He said, I am so sorry this happened. Can I pray with you? All the good things. But then Sam said this. He told her, you know, this happened because of a sin in your life, and you need to confess it. Ugh. 
You see, the first extreme, if we have a bad theology of suffering, is believing your suffering is punishment from God. If you think your suffering is punishment from God, that's the first extreme, and that is not, it's not completely true. You see, Sam, he knew his Bible. Well, you know, he knew, like, well, David was a good guy. David had faith. David beat Goliath. Moses was a good guy. You know, Noah was a good guy, so God spared him from the flood. You know, he, he knows this to some extent, but he has a kind of just a basic understanding of the Bible. He doesn't understand God's fuller character, and that yeah, God called Moses, but Moses also was in the desert for 40 years, and he had a really hard time leading the Israelites, and it was very frustrating. Or that Paul and Peter and others in the New Testament taught that sometimes, as Christians, you suffer for doing good things, and that's a blessing. That's a good thing. Or, yeah, David became king, but he had to run and hide from Saul for most of his years as a young man. And see, suffering isn't because God is punishing us. And if you are in that extreme, what you do is you begin to hide from God because you think, well, God is angry with me. He's upset with me. And you may feel ashamed. You feel shame. And so you want to hide from God. You don't want to talk to him. You want to stay away from him. But that's a misunderstanding of God and sin. You see, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that as Paul says in the book of Romans, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So because of what Jesus did on the cross, Jesus paid for your sins. So God doesn't have anything to punish you for. He does not make you suffer to punish you and try to teach you a lesson for something bad you've done. That's just not how he works. And so if we are a follower of Jesus, our sin's paid for. So God does not send his suffering to people to punish them for things. That's not how it works. Now, there's another lady named Sue, and Sue was sure because of what she'd been taught growing up about Romans 8.28, that everything bad always works out for good. So when she had a really terrible situation, she assumed God's going to fix this pretty quickly. Uh, she had a friend who committed fraud and caused her to lose everything she worked hard for. Sue went from being the CEO of a company to being an hourly you know, wage employee. But she just kind of assumed, well, surely God's going to make this work out for good. So she waited, she waited, and as the years ticked by and things did not seem to change or things did not suddenly and miraculously get better, she got bitter at God, and she began to drift away from him because she thought, well, God's supposed to fix this, and he's not fixing this. So what kind of God is that? But that's the second extreme. The second extreme is expecting suffering to work out for the best. Because here's the thing about Romans 8.28 where Paul writes, God works out all things for the good of those who believe him. Is that doesn't necessarily mean that on earth everything will get better the way we think better should look. Sometimes things don't always work out the way we want them to. Sometimes we're confident that, well, hey, if we're just obedient to God, the sickness will disappear. We just, we just got to be obedient. Or we think that God's going to return the job or the distant son is going to come home. And so we get confused and angry and bitter when nothing seems to happen. Or you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and nothing seems to change. And so you, you wonder because your expectation isn't coming true. But the problem is this is not what Paul means in Romans 8. Paul doesn't mean that every time something bad happens, God is just going to swoop right in and make it all better, make it all happy, make it just give you blessings. It doesn't always mean that. What Paul does mean, because if you just go a few verses later in Romans 8, 
That's where Paul talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God. What Paul does mean is that even in the worst situation that could happen to you on earth, no matter how bad the suffering gets, that suffering does not separate you from the promises of God. That doesn't take away God's love and grace and forgiveness from you. No matter how bad things get, that is not an indictment on your character or your faithfulness. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes things on earth do work out, right? We even have the expression, um, say, hey, it all, it all worked out for the best. Sometimes on earth, things, things get bad, and then they, they all work out. You're like, hey, worked out great. And sometimes they don't. But that doesn't always mean that God is allowing you to suffer, or he's always going to fix it. Sometimes we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait for heaven for things to all be fixed. And that can be tough to wait. But in either extreme, what begins to happen is we hide or push God away. We either hide from him because we feel ashamed and he's angry at us and he's just looking to get us in trouble, or we push him away because we think, God, you were, you were supposed to do something about this and you're not, get away. And that's not true of God. But in a similar way, this is sort of happening with Job and his friends. His friends are in the first extreme. They are assuming Job is suffering because he's being punished. And that is sort of feeding Job's anger and bitterness, and he's struggling, and he doesn't know what to do. So Job kind of later on, he says this in chapter 16. He, he says, God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. Job begins to believe God is angry at him. God's got it out for Job. A little later, he shares that he thinks that God doesn't have any pity for him. He says, his archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. What a colorful metaphor. Just ugh. And so Job's friends, they're, they're in that first extreme, and that only makes Job feel worse. And he begins to not be sure what he thinks about God. And and if God really is angry at him, or if God really doesn't care, or has any mercy left for Job, he kind of feels like maybe he's just being singled out. And God is just attacking Job for no good reason. Now, here's what I need you to understand about the book of Job. Is that, you know, the Bible records what happens in Job, because that's kind of how the story goes. But that doesn't mean that everything that Job and his friends are saying are true. So this is, this is an honest recording of Job's thoughts and feelings and his conversations with his friends. But it's not there to say, hey, every single verse and every single word in Job is a true statement about who God is. It's just how, he, how they honestly feel. So you, you have to be careful just pulling things out of Job and thinking, well, man, God must be a real jerk. It's like, no, Job feels like that, but that doesn't mean it's true. The Bible's just being honest with where Job's at. And again, we know from the first two chapters of Job that God is not angry at Job. He is not punishing Job. We know his friends are wrong. And so that helps us to kind of understand a little bit of where Job is coming from and put it in the right place. And so in part, Job's story is teaching us that we can be wrong in our assumptions and in our understanding about why suffering happens and what our role is in it. Sometimes the way we might view it just isn't true, or the assumptions that we're making are not correct. Yeah, there was, there was a woman one time playing when the weather was much warmer than it is today. She was out at the park with her, with her daughter, and they were playing with some other kids. 
And she noticed there is this man kind of at the, at the edge of the park watching the girls play. And so her, her mom's senses begin to tingle. You know, this is, this is a big guy. He's got some tattoos on his arm. She thinks, oh, I, gotta, I, gotta, I need, I need to, pay, to pay attention to this guy. And she started to feel pretty uncomfortable. I mean, this, this kind of looked like a guy who any, any, any day on the evening news, his mugshot could show up. Like, have you seen this man? We're looking for him. So she texted her husband, hey, can you just swing by the park and, and go and pick us up? I'm a little nervous. Like, okay, I'll be right there. Give me a couple minutes. And he, she goes ahead and, and get, calls to her daughter, hey, it's time to go. And her daughter comes running over with this, this other girl that she's made friends with at the park and says, hey, mom, hey, mom, hey, mom, this is my new friend. Can she come with us for ice cream? And she notices at this moment that this scary dude is starting to walk up to them. And this other new girl turns around and says, hey, dad, can we go with them for ice cream? And the mom is like, oh, she doesn't know what to do. She's very concerned about this guy. And, well, maybe he would not be a good influence for my daughter. And maybe his daughter wouldn't be. So she's like, honey, I'm sorry, not right now. We got to, go. you know, she's making the excuses. We got to get out of here. And, you know, dad's here. He's going to pick us up. We got to go. So they head out to the parking lot. And this other girl, she's just kind of upset. She was, you know, hoping to maybe go get ice cream with her new friend. And so her and her dad, they also get ready to leave. So they're both walking through the parking lot to their respective cars. And so the protective mom, her husband, gets out and, hey, honey, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. We just need to go. And he looks, he looks over and says, hey, John, is that you? And the scary dude turns over, hey, hey, Gabe, how's it going, man? She's like, honey, what are you doing? It's like, she's like, do you? do you know this guy? No, him. he's my boss at work. And she's like, oh. So she thought, from appearances, this guy might be here to hurt us, when in reality, that guy's helping them. That's the guy who started the construction company that her husband now had a really great job at and allowed for them to have everything that they have in life. And she assumed a lot about this guy. And let's be fair, we can assume an awful lot about God from what other people say about him, or just kind of how our mind thinks and imagines what he must be doing, and we try to understand our situation, and we can make some pretty bad assumptions. And we can assume God is trying to, to hurt us, or he doesn't care, or he's not listening, when the opposite is true. He's actually trying to help us and benefit us. And so we have to be careful not to make assumptions. Because the truth is, Suffering is complicated. It's just complicated. The Bible, frustratingly enough, does not give a one-size-fits-all answer to suffering. The Bible doesn't say every time something bad happens, here's your one answer, here's the one reason. The Bible gives several different stories and several different examples of what possibly could be happening. But there's not just, here's the one answer and it works everywhere. Part of the reason for this is that Job is what we call a wisdom book. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you uh, something really important about how you study the Bible. So the Bible is made up of a number of different genres. So you've got, you've got stories, you've got wisdom, you've got prophets, you've got, you've got all kinds of different genres. And just like anything else, right, if you're reading the newspaper and you switch from the sports section to, you know, the comic strip to the political opinions, like you kind of have to read all of those a little bit differently, right? Same is true in the Bible. You need some different rules for each kind of genre to understand what's going on. So here's the thing about wisdom literature, like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, is they are looking at the world from the big picture. 
and they're giving general principles or a general picture that just, it kind of makes sense of life at the biggest picture. But it doesn't really always work if you apply it to every single situation, like Proverbs. You take a proverb, and it's like, well, yeah, that, that kind of works. That sounds right. But when you would try to apply that proverb to specific situations, it doesn't always work anymore. It doesn't quite fit. And that's what happens with Job. Job is looking at, in the biggest picture, the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people kind of sort of makes sense of God. Because God does enjoy it when we obey him. And ultimately, those of us who follow Jesus, we will be blessed with eternal life, and we will be blessed in his presence in heaven. And generally speaking, yeah, God doesn't like it when we disobey him. And at the end of the world, he's going to punish everyone who didn't follow Jesus and disobeyed him with their life. But when you try to take that big principle and apply it to every specific situation, it doesn't work. Because when you try to take that situation and say, well, maybe that person got sick because they have a hidden sin in their life, you go, well, that Job's whole point is, no, it doesn't work like that anymore. It kind of sort of works at the big picture, but it doesn't work for all of our individual lives and stories. And so here's, here's the, technical, the technical word for what Job and his friends are wrestling with. It's called the retribution principle. The retribution principle. And that's the idea of good things happen to good people, God blesses good people, and he curses the bad people. And that's what Job and his friends think about how the world works. And that generally makes sense on the biggest picture, but it doesn't make sense for all the little individual twists and turns. I mean, in a way, that retribution principle doesn't even work with Jesus, because Jesus went to the cross and died for all of our sins. That sounds pretty horrible, but yet that's how Jesus saved the world. So it's sort of true, but it's not true every time for everything. And the Bible gives multiple kinds of possibilities for why suffering can happen. So the, the main one is that suffering can happen because the world is broken because of sin. And so all of us are under the general curse of sin. The world does not work the way it's supposed to work. And so people get sick. There are car accidents. You know, there are, there are bills you unfairly get. There, you know, people make fun of you. There are bullies. There's wars. There, the world is just broken. So bad things happen, and all of us have to deal with that. There's another kind of suffering that especially the New Testament talks about where, especially in 1 Peter, where we are doing good. We are serving the Lord, we are being faithful to his mission, and we suffer because of that. Because the world doesn't like the message of Jesus and begins to push back, or the forces of darkness fight back to what we're trying to do. And so we suffer even though we're doing good things that God is proud of us for, and we're being obedient to him. Sometimes suffering happens because of our own poor decisions. We, we make some bad decisions in life that lead to something bad happening, and it's kind of our own fault. And sometimes when suffering happens, God uses that suffering to refine you and to produce something better in you, and even for his glory. He can take a really terrible situation and use it for his purposes. And so suffering's complicated. There's not one specific reason, and that can make it hard for us. And even though suffering is complicated, the good news is God is consistent. No matter what reason or reasons or options or possibilities might have caused your suffering, God is the same. So God is going to be the same whether you made some really dumb decisions and you're suffering, it's kind of your own fault. Or whether you're suffering because the world is broken 
and things do not work the way they're supposed to, and so you're suffering because of that. God is the same. God is still with you. He still, as David writes in the Psalms, he still walks with you through the valley. He is still the good shepherd who's going to take care of you. He still can refine you when you're going through that suffering. He can still bring something out of it for his glory and use it for something good in his mission to save the world. And he promises that there will be a day when you will be free of all suffering. As followers of Jesus, when we die, all suffering goes away. There will be no more suffering in heaven. God will heal us of everything. He'll wipe every tear away. And so regardless of how you're suffering or why you're suffering, God is the same. No matter what's happening in your situation, he's consistent. And so even though the complications of suffering lead us to doubt who God is, we need to remember he's the same. He loves you. He cares for you. He's powerful enough. He will sustain you. He'll get you through it. So I kind of want to help us because these different extremes that we can have with a bad theology of suffering can make us kind of turn away from God in our relationship with him. But what we actually need the most is to turn towards him in our suffering. So I'm going to give you just a simple five-question self-assessment, okay? These are yes or no questions, and just answer them honestly. So here they are. Here's the five questions. Number one, am I actively seeking God? Do I desire God more than anything or anyone else? Do I feel joy or peace when I think about God? Do I talk with God about my life? Do I enjoy spiritual conversations with friends? So if you answered no to at least three of those questions, then I would say there's a good chance you are distancing yourself from God, that thinking about God makes you anxious or makes you feel ashamed or nervous or angry, or you don't, you don't enjoy thinking about him or talking to him, or you don't trust him. And so if, that, if you think that might be you, a really good next step for you would be to find a time to meet either with myself or Rodney and let us help you have a little, little pastoral conversation and dig a little deeper into what might be going on. Maybe something has happened or there's a certain way that you're thinking or something in your life that's making you kind of distance yourself from God and not trust him. And we can help you begin to work through that. Because there is a ray of hope of Job in this sort of portion of the book, from chapters 15 to 21. Job, sort of unintentionally, as he often does in this book, points us to one of God's consistent characteristics. In Job chapter 19, Job says this. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now, it's really easy to hear those words, especially when he says, my Redeemer lives, and go, oh, he's talking about Jesus, and run straight to Jesus. And while definitely this points us to Jesus, Job is not talking about Jesus. Job has no idea that there's supposed to be a Messiah. He lived thousands of years before Jesus. He doesn't know about Jesus. And he's actually using something that he would have been familiar with. See, he uses 
uh, this word for redeemer, a goel, and a goel is also used in the book of Ruth. A goel or redeemer is somebody in your family, your closest relative, who can restore your lost property or your lost dignity. So in the book of Ruth in the Bible, it tells a story about a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. And what's happened is Ruth, the main character of the story, her husband dies, and her and her, her mother-in-law stick together, but all the men in the family have died, which is a problem because in that culture, men own property and run businesses. So they don't have a good way to provide for themselves. They don't have a great place to live. They end up going back home, and Ruth just sort of has to pick scraps of grain off the ground to provide for her family. And so Boaz, happily as the Redeemer, comes in, marries Ruth, and then brings her and her mother-in-law into his house and takes care of them and provides for them and keeps them safe. And so Job is, what he's thinking of is he's thinking, maybe some relative of mine, if, just, if only my story could be recorded, maybe someday one of my relatives will take up my story and use it to defend other people who find themselves in this kind of a situation. Job has no idea that God is going to record his story. And that, in fact, yeah, all of us get to read it now. Job had no idea that his story would be helpful for all of us. And so even though Job was thinking about a distant family member who just maybe, maybe will fight for others, God used his words prophetically, even though Job, I don't think, realized what he was doing. Because, yeah, his story was recorded, but also, Jesus gets to be our redeemer. Because it's, you know, think about it, God is our father, and so the closest relative in a way that any of us have who could restore what is lost, who could save our, our broken dignity, is Jesus. And so Jesus becomes our, our kinsman redeemer, and he does the only thing to restore to us what has been lost. And so he goes to the cross and dies in place of all of us and raises from the dead so that we can be given back the presence of God that we lost, so that we can be given back our ability to have eternal life and to be with Jesus forever. He gives us back what has been lost. And so restoration may look different for all of us. For some of us, restoration may look like the healing from a disease. Restoration may look like getting a job back. Restoration may look like being forgiven by a deep wound you've caused on somebody else or that someone's caused to you. But redemption looks the same for all of us. We are all under the curse of sin. And it's because of Jesus that we will all be restored. So whatever suffering has taken from you, Jesus is your Redeemer who's going to bring it back. And so because of what Jesus did, suffering isn't a hopeless or a meaningless endeavor for any of us. It's not the end of the story. Because no matter what, whether it happens on earth or it doesn't happen until heaven, Jesus is going to restore and redeem everything that suffering has taken from you. He will give it back, and then some. So I think at the end, I just like how Paul David Tripp said it. I like how he summed it up. He said, God is the one who not only comforts you, but produces beautiful things in you and through you, out of which you didn't invite into your life and don't really want in your life, and out of what doesn't seem good at all.
So in the end, suffering is complicated, but God is consistent. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for being our Redeemer. I thank you for willingly coming to earth and suffering the things we all suffer and going above and beyond that by going to the cross willingly, dying in our place, raising from the dead so that we could be restored, so that we could have the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we could be with our Father in heaven. And so, uh, God, I just want to especially pray right now for any of us in this room, anyone who, who is struggling in their relationship with God, anyone who maybe they feel fear or anger or anxiety or shame when it comes to their relationship with God, I pray that you would, that you would work in them to help free them from those feelings. I would pray that you would give them, give them the tools and the resources and the opportunities to work through that so that they could be closer to you. And Father, I pray for anyone who, who doesn't know you yet, that you would continue to move in their life and speak to them and help them to know that you are their creator and that you love them and you want them to follow your son Jesus and be with, with him forever and eternity. And Father, I continue to pray as we have cold weather still today that you would provide warmth and take care of those who are struggling right now um, and continue to help us as a church family be the hands and feet of Jesus as we serve one another in our community. It's in your name I pray. Amen.